0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Field Music Cast, where we tell you about one of our songs, um, and we use that as an excuse to talk about uh, some other music. Um, so this episode is going to be about another song from our new album, Flat White Moon. It's called Meant to Be.
1: We'll mm-hmm. be So just a kind of very simple little bluesy number. Um, I mean, I don't know whether you remember this, Dave, but the title for this song came about because, I don't know, when we were trying to think of a name for field music or for the band that me, you and Andy were doing for the album that we were making at the time, we stopped thinking of band names. And started thinking of... Comedy boy band names.
0: I didn't think that was at the same time we were thinking of field music, but whenever it was, like we were certainly we spent a lot of time thinking of comedy
1: boy band names. So we had this idea for um, men to be. So it'd be men, and then the, the number two. Well, not the number two. I was thinking of the kind of the Roman numerals two, <laughs> on to which you would put two circles. So it was like, so two, it guys,
0: like two guys, two
1: guys, two guys. Doing the splits in mid-air. I don't know if you can picture that. And then just a B, the letter B. And I think we imagined that to be the, um, the avant-garde boy band that we were going to do when... Can you, can you remember the, the idea behind that? We had a lot
0: of ideas for avant-garde boy bands, but I do remember one where the idea was that everybody would wear, like, noise cancel and headphones. That's the one, yeah. And... We would all have the same like count in, but whatever key you started singing in, you'd be stuck with whatever key you were singing in. And you wouldn't know and whatever it any wouldn't key would be the same. Yeah. So everyone would be in time and in, in harmony, parallel harmony, but definitely, definitely not in the same key. So it would be just. Should the- we try it right now? Well, no. Well, it's impossible to do because as soon as you hear someone else, you you, you well, just put, psychologically
1: put your ear and let's what? do end at the end of the road. Should you do that? Should you do a bo- the end of bo- the road? Yeah, by Boys to Men. That was kind of the idea. Oh, it okay.
0: I don't know. Th- you don't know the tune. I don't know the words. I don't know how the okay. What boy band the songs? The end of. <laughs> what but
1: boy it- band songs do you know?
0: <laughs> Mostly, I sing. Uh,
1: um, Good Night Girl by Wet, Wet, Wet. So let's do caught, caught Up in Your Wishing Well, Your Hope's Inside, All Your Love and Promises. Right,
0: and I'm, I'm going to stick my fingers in my ear and I'm going to nod for one, two, three, four. Okay? Yeah. One, two, three. Caught Up in Your Wishing Well, Your Hope's Inside. It. Well, I think what actually happened there was um, run, run, that we've infringed where to copyright. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we might have to fade that out, which okay. just, just the tiniest hint and okay. see
1: whether we actually started <clears throat> we in the same. in one of our own songs. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure no one cares. <laughs> um, anyway, so you weren't expecting me to talk about that, were you?
0: I don't mind. I'm, I'm up for anything. But, I mean, I would like to hear about the actual song meant to be and not just... We can come back to the avant garde boy. Band well, let's names. not
1: talk about our songs too much. Um, I had the riff for a long time, and I did imagine it initially as a kind of sort of off kilter version of the Fleetwood Mac classic "Oh Well." That song for us was ubiquitous in
0: our household. It was a big part of of us learning to play guitar, I mean, we have probably played... Still can't play it right. ...that riff a million different wrong ways yeah. since we started playing guitar in, like, 1990. I feel
1: like I'm getting getting there. I mean, Peter Green sort of is quite... Or he said it was quite throw, throwaway, really. And if it, if you've got that sort of material like you, just, like, throw away. You can tell he was doing it with a little, like, glint in his
0: eye and that it was... Yeah, there's a sense of humour to it, of course. And then there's the Orwell Part Two, which is is seems like a very deeply serious bit of yeah. music. But he was he was a complicated person. Was Peter Green? So yeah, when you first showed me um, this song, which might have been the day we recorded it, had uh, I not shown
1: you this, I'd had the riff for years and years. Peter you've got a lot of riffs. Let's Thanks. be honest, if you Thanks. were to
0: go through like your dictaphone recordings and my dictaphone recordings, how many 30 second to one minute bits of music would you have on there? It's not good, like... Good riffs. I didn't say good. I just oh. meant 30 to... thirty-second to a minute little clips of music. How many do you think you have? It's not going to be in the five to 10 range. It's not even going to be in the 20 to 30 range.
1: It's going to be in the... Getting towards 100, probably? Yeah, I would, I would say so. But I mean, you know, there's a reason why they haven't got used. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and the main reason, the main reason for this not getting used earlier, I tried, you know, every album since, um, I think maybe al- every album since Tones of Town, I've tried to write a song with, <laughs> with this riff, <laughs> but I couldn't get away from doing... I can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty, and my legs are thin. La 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 la. Hey, hey, man I said, said the way you move, gonna, gonna make you sweat, gonna, gonna make you groove. Hey, I tell you what, ta- talking
0: about infringing on copyrights. I mean, yeah, we're not infringing on Led Zeppelin's copyright in that case, are we? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think they knew either. <laughs> Um, Traditional arranged by Peter and David But I mean, Bruce. yeah,
1: I mean, Black Dog was Jimmy Page has said it was inspired by Oh Well, so I, I wanted to try and make a song that was like not quite bluesy, but used that sort of structure. Call and answer, call and answer, sort of. And um, but I, I, I wanted I, again, I wanted it to be kind of tongue in cheek, but you have to kind of you have to find the right you don't want it to be like stupid or like patron- patronizing Sometimes yeah the jokey uh, music can be kind of like are you in on the joke and but yeah yeah you did not want, yeah, like didn't want it, I didn't want that and I didn't want it to be too se- like too serious either um mm. so it really took me a while to try and you know i've i've you know i ha- I had written lots of other versions of this right, song okay, yeah okay. I mean and you might be thinking there like well so this is the best you could come up with
0: no i, I mean i i <laughs> i I love it and it's and when we started recording this album, there was a sense that maybe more of the record would be like in this style because we, we actually have a lot more unused bits of material that we recorded at the beginning of the recording process where they were kind of riffs, you know, that lent in that kind of like early Fleetwood Mac yeah. style or a lot of free... Um, a lot of things which sounded like I'll be creeping back to front. Um, and it didn't all stay like that. Although I think that inevitably um, elements of that style, you know, do proliferate through the whole record. It just so happens that Meant to Be is one of the ones which like kind of stayed stayed there. But it's not, it's not pure... Brit blues boom
1: either no but I think that and I think that is one of the things I like about even the Brit blues boom stuff it goes for something and then and misses and then it gets somewhere else and um, you know for instance something like Politician by Cream so that has a like I mean it it kind of is a blues it is It's 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 a 12 bar blues but it is it's very very odd it's very odd. It's got its own particular kind of groove, and it's got that. Um, it's major. It's or it's not major. It's, it's minor. Pretty chromatic. It's it's. But I think that's one of the things that Jack Bruce had said about using the blues as a kind of as a as a jumping off point for things. It's that it's really really flexible. And there's loads of things you can do with that um, in between minor major tonality um, which is
0: where it, which is where it comes from because like the you know the the kind of the readily available blues music which is kind of true to its deepest roots are probably things like john lee hooker and um you know john lee hooker you might call them 12 bar blues quite often there's not 12 bar there might be 13 or 14 or 11 or something else um and his early recordings, especially the, the modern stuff, it's just him stamping and electric guitar and singing. And other than it being like a kind of three-line structure, it's very open t- to whatever he's saying, to whatever is happening, like in that performance. Yeah. So it kind of the
1: the the chord changes. If you can if you can call them even chord changes, really. Um, they they change with however long the lines of the lyri- the lyrics are, and you find you find that in a lot of um, earlier earlier blues stuff. But, ob- but obviously, it makes it difficult because you know the John Lee Hooker stuff, where he's playing with a band. And yeah. Well, when is he going to change chord? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they come from that kind of chord chord based music. Um, yeah, well, famously,
0: weren't, weren't like, can't heat, like can't particularly heat, think, good yeah. at following him because, because they, just juice, like, yeah. they, they were absolutely attuned to like how whatever he was playing on guitar or whatever he was singing was going to imply when it was going to change even if you know you might be counting through and just like well this that's not right that's not going to be the right thing to do but i feel like
1: the british guys had to be a bit more structured about it because they weren't from that tradition but i mean you know i mean i haven't said like something a band like cream for instance, could say, well, we are basically playing some kind of 12-bar. We've got a very, very tight structure, but within that structure, you can do whatever you want.
0: And I think some of that comes from the fact that Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker are kind of jazz players, really, only only Eric Clapton was a
1: a blues purist. Um, Ginger Ginger always says that uh, Clapton was a... Jazzy, oh, he was a jazz player. He had time. That's what I remember him <laughs> saying about... I don't really know what that means. I don't know whether that means he was never late. I mean, Ginger Baker... Or he didn't have to do any other jobs. He, just, <laughs> he was always on time. Well, Ginger Baker said a lot of things. He did. He was very kind about Eric Clapton. and He was very kind about you know, Max Roach and uh, Elvin Jones. He wasn't very kind about a lot of other quite, people. Quite disparaging about many other people, <laughs> many other things. But he did
0: what he was trying to do, you know, the way he wanted to do it with no compromises to what anyone else thought it should be. Um, Fleetwood Mac, I think are interesting because there's some stuff they recorded at Chess Studios in Chicago, um, which sounds absolutely perfectly like the best Chicago electric blues. Mm. They could do that really, really purist blues. But then, as Peter Green developed as a songwriter, it goes all over the place with things like Green Man, of Lishi, Man of the World, and Orwell. Well.
1: I mean, gets, even, even even Albatross is like a kind of. Oh, it's quite a strange. It's a it's a strange move to make. Yeah, for it's a pure like band, a, it's like almost harkened back to well, it's a guitar instrumental, isn't it? It's like like, like, like the Shadows. Like the Shadows, yeah. Um, and. Um,
0: f- a very, I mean, it's, it, it feels like a very, like, cliched record now because it's s- been so much part of popular culture for so long. But actually, as far as a guitar band making something atmospheric, bordering on, like, ambient, it's about the sound and the texture of it rather than about tunes, um,
1: it's pretty, pretty impressive. And it was a smash, hit. It's a smash hit. It was a smash hit. It was a smash.
0: Number one hit.
1: A couple of times. <laughs> yeah. There's There's a tradition of weird blues. Yeah. And people think that it kind of, it it's, it starts at the 60s. No, I'm not, I'm not saying pe- pe- you all think it starts at the 60s. You know, I know that, but there is this, there's an idea where, where someone like, for instance, Captain Beefheart takes the blues and does something really, really weird with it and and con- and continue to do so um right up until like the end the end of his career, so you end up with something like a hothead on um, Dock the radar station so that to me <clears throat> again a kind of the tonality of it the feel of it is 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 blues for me yeah it, it's blues, but it's odd it's like almost bitonal you know the the sort of rhythm guitars in one key and then this lead guitar comes up and it plays a melody and it's it's in a it's almost in a different key or it, it starts to move towards a different key. But I think there are um, there's a there's a longer tradition of that really.
0: Indeed. I mean I think that um, it's difficult to get a to get a handle on because the nature of recorded music is different when you get like back to the recorded roots of blues, things were recorded in a local area and m- most of the stuff that lived on were kind of hits to some degree, like jukebox hits. Um, But there's a lot of strangeness when you get to the roots of recorded blues, whether that's like Mississippi John Hurt, or or those early John Lee Hooker records, um, someone like Sun House, where it feels like really declamatory all the time. Um,
1: and do you think that like the Sun House stuff being sort of declamatory? Do you think that's because his roots were in, um, I don't know, like gospel or something or church. I don't. Singing, I, I you know what? I don't know, but I but.
0: I think if you were a working blues musician then, if you yeah. made your living or some part of your living by being a musician, you would be traveling around from town to town. You might play inside somewhere, but you might also be making your living from basically singing on a street corner for for, nice. for people to give you change. Um, and it's something I like, I found interesting reading about, um, because of uh, Harry Smith's Anthology of American Folk Music. Mm. Um, like, you know, there are kind of uh, church-based singers on that, but there's also just a lot of people who travelled around their their local area and had a kind of, like, local fame, but not many of them are recorded a lot. Um, and that's how, you, you know, you build up the kind of like mythology around someone like Robert Johnson, who he was kind of renowned in a small area um, and by chance, in a way, recorded, you know, these like 30 tracks. Yeah. In, it was in just a, like two sessions or something. In a hotel it? room. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, you know, that's the basis of so much of what became like the British blues boom. Um, but one of the... Singers who made kind of like the strangest blues, which maybe I think think we might have first heard of through Beck actually, because I think I think Beck talked about him a lot. Was um, was Skip James? Yeah, and Skip James is particularly weird because he's got on his guitar songs seem to be based around like strange. It was like uh, an open tuning, wasn't it? some kind of strange, minor leaning open tuning. And the, so the harmony is, is quite odd and quite unique to him. And on the other hand, he also played piano blues, mm-hmm. where the harmony is more normal, but his it's like he could only play the piano following exactly what he was singing. So the rhythm of those really leaps around. And I think they're probably like, I think his piano songs are maybe like less renowned because it doesn't fit with our, our idea of like Of what, what blues the is. dark blues, right? You know, yeah, yeah. This like yeah. you know, devil <laughs> at the crossroads kind of blues is. Um, but I think both sides of that are totally fascinating. He's someone else who, at the time, I think we're talking like very early thirties, like thirty-one. Um,
1: yeah, recorded these. Twenty, thirty tracks, and then he, and then he kind of disappeared, didn't he, for a bit? Or, well, not like literally disappeared, but he, he,
0: you know, he, none of his music between nineteen thirty-one and when he kind of was rediscovered in the sixties. I'm not sure what he was doing in that time, but he wasn't making records. Making records, yeah. um, and then, and then did did make records again in the sixties when, you know, when there's this like rediscovery of, of, of folk and blues, but he's a really fascinating musician. And again, like some of the things that he did in maybe a less obvious way than Robert Johnson became, you know, one of the building blocks for the, the rediscovery of
1: of blues. I mean, that, that, that idea of, um, this is going off on a bit of a tangerine, I suppose, but that idea of, um Recording being like not readily available, and not that means that things because it's an oral tradition that yeah. they are not documented. Yeah, so it's very hard to know how things were performed and what what anything sounded like, what the structure of things. You you've kind of you've kind of got to use your musicological, left It's ethno- a bit of a dig, isn't it? Like brain sort of thing. I wonder what what was going on because all we have is the these few you know no one was there at the birth of the blues you know um so it's hard to um well nothing was recorded anyway
0: i think one of the interesting things um that you do have to piece it together um on the one hand you've got um the Lomaxes, who actually went out Mm. to people and recorded them and recorded them speak as well as recording yeah, their, yeah. them playing. Um, so there's an amazing at the very first Muddy Waters yeah. recordings are you know th- in the plantations. Yeah, yeah. The, the, um, at at his <clears throat> at his home, um, and then because of the nature of how how these blues artists were like sought out in the '60s, where it was like you know quite earnest students trying to understand the story. They also did interviews with a lot of, a lot of these blues artists and all of them talk about everyone that I've ever seen. They talk about how they learned to play by watching some other guitarist play. Um, So like, you know, Muddy Waters will talk about learning how to play slide guitar by watching Sunhouse or whoever it was yeah
1: and, and and for us obviously that was that's completely different we, we learned we, to play by records really we, we learned to play by records or you know we we had a guitar teacher for a bit and then and we had guitar magazines as well you know things things like that you know and it's like and it actually in a way that that, that method that that we use doesn't really teach you to um it, it's a different set of senses in a way, you know. It doesn't really teach you to use your ears so so much. I mean, re- records, possibly less so, but it's not like we were sat in front of Jimmy Page, um, at at some like kind of dance somewhere, like figuring out how he's doing his hammer ons.
0: You can you can <laughs> see how it leads to these very very individual voices, if your like musical education is seeing and hearing someone play right in front of you. And then they go away. You don't get to like sit with them for the next six months Mm. while they teach you every part of their process, every technique. Because they're not teachers. They're not teachers. You see a bit and you take what you can from it. But of course it's gonna be, you know, a a big translative leap from what they've done to what you can do with whatever instrument you have to hand. So the, I don't know, it makes me want to go and listen to loads of old blues and, and see the massive differences between these people. Some of whom, yeah, maybe came through the
1: church. Or I mean, like. I, th- I think the guitar playing sort of side of it is interesting because I think there are a lot of really good guitarists out there, technically really good guitarists. Who I don't necessarily think ha- have an individual voice on guitar. Um, sometimes I worry that I'm a little bit like that—that that I don't have. Be- be- because because bit- we've learned we've learned to play by by mimicking different things. Yeah, and I think for us, if there's and if- we've learned a bit a bit of bit of technique as well, and and sometimes you learn, um, what the right thing to do is. I mean, it, you know, in terms of like, what's the right way to do your vibrato? You know, is it like you know the um, the classic sort of? But that's just like maybe it's the the normal way to do it now, the ubiquitous way, where you know I can't even do what like what Peter Green might have done. <laughs> can't do it. It's just too it's too hard, you know, or um.
0: I mean, I think physically there's only one kind of vibrato I can play, so I'm I'm kind of stuck with that by just not being very good. <laughs> I, I think I think if um, if we've developed a unique style, and I think that's probably the case for anyone in the, in the era of like available recorded music, it's the combination of the things that you put together. Yeah. Um, if you are too focused on like, oh, this is my guitar player, this is the guy who I sound like then yeah, maybe
1: you will just end up as like, but I sometimes think that maybe one of the problems is, is not even people actually listening to what people, what people do and saying, I'm going to have a bit of that and a bit of that. It's just like, they apply they proper taught, technique to, they, they they go to a college and get taught by a a proper guitarist. Who's like a superb technician. You can play all of that stuff, but there ends up being like a kind of a standard, standard way of doing it. Um, I might be completely wrong now because I'm sure there are plenty of guitarists out there who have really individual voices, but I also know for a fact that there are guitarists out there who are great technically and don't necessarily have that individual voice. I mean, everyone can't have an individual voice in guitar otherwise. Oh, can they? I don't know. I don't know. I've said that now and I'm I'm not quite sure.
0: I don't know. I mean, I I think maybe this is um, in the nature of how we learn to play is that, you, like your guitar playing style. You know, we have guitar solos in our songs. <laughs> and actually when Not we- put you off, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> they're usually very, very short. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but when we started playing our own music and, and, and really started to find like, you know, what is the thing we do? Actually, guitar solos were like, mm, no, you don't, you don't do guitar solos. That's, it's too kind of, it's too rock. It's yeah. too cliched. And it was only like as we developed and you know, what is really us and actually deep inside. Well, of us. It, it, it's
1: it's definitely part part of us, really. It's definitely part of um and, you know, it's up to us whether we choose to ignore our our formative influences and say, Do you know what? No, we are not rock anymore. But I mean, if that's the case, you may as well just put your guitar away. Don't don't say that. Don't don't I'm man, saying your guitar, I mean you got a fair few. <laughs> uh, I have to have a very big cupboard to put them all away. But But uh, it's just, it's just, it's too much, too much fun. And there are too many possibilities with the guitar, especially when you're out of tune, <laughs> um, which, you know, I mean, tuning is, is, is good, it's good, it's useful, but it's, it's not everything. It's overrated.
0: Well, maybe, maybe then. If if we're talking about finding the gaps in the harmonic spectrum, <laughs> we should talk about um, someone else who played a lot of blues, but whose melodic sensibility is very strange and has been a huge influence on us. And that... Oh! I'm talking about Thelonious Sphere Monk. So... Our, our journey, our personal musical journey with Thelonious Far out, man. Began, um, we were on holiday with our parents and with Barry Hyde of the Future Heads in Barcelona. And we walked past a bookshop, uh, like the works kind of bookshop. And there was a table at the front with cheap jazz CDs. It was like four for 10 euros or something. Yeah. It was like, okay, like we'll get four. And there was a, I remember there was. We got a Dizzy Gillespie one. There's was a Charlie Mingus one. We got a Charlie Mingus, Mingus one. one. Um, but the the Thelonious Monk one, this, this like really cheap, what looked like a very, very cheap compilation CD, was most of the tracks from Monk's music, mm. as we discovered much later. And I absolutely loved it. Thought it was really weird.
1: It is kind of weird. Um, I mean, it's kind of full of full of catchy tunes. Very catchy tunes. Very logical, but also I wouldn't say hummable, but um, memorable. So like you hear the tune, and you think, "Well, did that? Did that really happen?" Did that really go to go there? It, I mean, they go outside the
0: rules of what you think of as being a hummable tune, and then you find yourself singing them, and then you try and work them out, and he's like, did you really use those notes next to each other? Because if you know like a little bit of music theory, you think, okay, well, I play in this key, and that's where my tune is. And Thelonious Monk's tunes take you around the doors of a key or move key as, as they go along yeah I always
1: I, w- I wonder whether the um wh- whether he had the kind of the chords mapped out first and then had the tunes with with the chords or whether it's all all together because he must have for instance told his musicians what the chords what were the changes were yeah otherwise they might have been flailing around thinking well what note?" Am I there are quite
0: a few Thelonious Monk records where you can hear the musicians playing yeah, playing yeah, kind of playing around,
1: and that's that's that, and that that's fine, you know. I mean, and that that particular that particular track, um, that where I think we're thinking about, well, you needn't. Yes, you no, know, that that's a very early um, session for him, wasn't it? It was in the late forties, I think. A little, a little, a little bit out, of ch- slightly honky tonk, and you know, you can hear him kind of trying to sort of bend notes on the on the piano. You know, you really like push down a, a a note, and it's um, unless it's, unless it's just out of tune. Um, and
0: quite often, deliberately hits two notes right next to each yeah. other to to make it jarring. It's just a f- totally fascinating musical brain. I mean, when you talk about the changes, like the, the, you d- did, lots of things that were blues, and um, back in the days when we used to read books about jazz all the time, you'd find them saying. <laughs> Oh yeah, but that song has just got I got rhythm changes. And I think with the bebop musicians as that as bebop was developing in in the 1940s around these like small bands I think they relied quite heavily on a f- small number of standard chord changes that you got in a song. And I think Monk does that as well, but then pushes it that little bit further at times, so yeah, like loads of them based around "I Got Rhythm" by Gershwin. Yeah, um, and he did
1: like nice work if you can get it and things like that. Which yeah, is, which course, is another which is another standard, but it's it's his own compositions really. Where it's um, he he had an an idea and it was k- kind of his idea and his his alone really. You can hear some of the influences from, you know, maybe uh, like the likes of Duke Ellington, perhaps. And you can hear how what he did
0: fed into you know most, if not all, of the jazz that happened afterwards. But nobody did it like him. And you know you have like Miles Davis. I like basically complaining about him like I had to, you know, I had to play with Monk, and he just like he doesn't support you. He's off doing his own thing. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean that is that that is what he does. And you can see how. Um, that would both infuriate other musicians but also absolutely sets out why he's cons- considered
1: the, w- the way he is yeah it's total individual and 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 everything he he does is just full of full of personality it's a, he's unmistakable really yeah which seems strange with piano
0: because it's like well you press a button and that's, <gasps> I know I know but the, the pianists st- out there. it's one of the more extreme examples of how someone has a style on the on the piano. yeah. yeah, um, yeah sorry, sorry to disparage pianists. It's just me It's being, just a bunch of buttons. It's just buttons. You just press this, just press it down. It's just a button. It <laughs> just goes to show like what a terrible Turby Hancock. did you hear that? <laughs> You're a button pusher, that's all you are. I'd just like to, to state <laughs> on the record here that I think Herbie Hancock is one of the greatest living musicians. <laughs> we should get back to meant to be. So it's just well, blues.
1: Well, actually, you you got those CDs yes, in Barcelona. In Barcelona. And it's a city which I love. It's and it's a fantastic city. Um I went to visit um friends there before the dark times bef, bef, while you still could go and visit things and I went with with my dad to visit our friends Rafael and Ainoa, and uh we went to a, a town ne- not too far from Barcelona I can't rem- remember the name of the town sorry and there was a kind of sort of street fe- festival on it was it was, Dece- it was december Still warm enough to have. But a it was street festival. Yeah, there was still a street festival in December, if you can imagine such a thing. Not, not in Sunderland, no. And uh, there was this sort of um, left-wing social club, and it, was, and it was it was tiny as well. It was like a tiny place, and they were they were serving food and serving drinks, and they had just this kind of uh, boombox outside. I think I think it was a CD, or it might have even been a a compilation cassette, <laughs> a mixtape. And everyone was sitting outside and drinking. And then this song came on, right, which I'd never heard before. And the whole street just erupted. Everyone doing like air guitar, <laughs> just like pointing at each other and doing this kind of, um, I don't know what you, like sort of pseudo gypsy dance moves. And I was like, what on earth is going on here? And this music was fantastic. Um, So I asked... Raphael's like, what, what on earth is this? He, he said, oh, this is um, a band called Las Las Grecas. And it, this this song was a big hit in, in Spain and Cal- Catalonia. And so he told me the story of these two sisters who formed this flamenco rock band, Las Grecas. And they released this particular song, which was a, ma- a massive hit in 1973, called, let me just try and get it right. Uh, Te estoy amando locamente. Te estoy amando locamente. Which Rafael said to me, this translate to, I am loving you crazily. <laughs> just what, a, what, what a conception. Now. And it's from the album, um, Gypsy Rock. It's actually called. It's, ac- it's called Gypsy Rock. Claim it. Um, and just that mix of the um, crazy guitar, um, really outrageous psychedelic guitar <laughs> really outrageous psychedelic
0: guitar all over the place, absolutely all over the place but the dancing that that song makes me want to do and that I have seen on a TV performance of that song, that is exactly the kind of dancing that I want to do when I listen to men to be: Well that's so I, the I idea, feel like yeah. you've achieved you've achieved a notable tribute last great ass well it this. was
1: last Gregas. ass that this this particular song i am loving you crazily or i am loving you madly um it gave me a way of making the song all oh, right okay you no know, it was this as i was like okay i can do you know heavier on the percussion it doesn't um, have to just be it doesn't have to be like a british blues, song. blues yeah. yeah it can be um it can have a particular groove and that's that was the sort of that was the solution Thanks Las Vegas. Right then. Now we've got a new segment to the music
0: cast. Oh really? Indeed. Where we're gonna News just in. <laughs> where we I have some listeners' questions and we have to take this very seriously and answer seriously because the people need to know. No deal. Um And it might be interesting. Which people? For for someone. So, for instance, this might be interesting to Elliot Goldner. He says, I'd love to hear about how you approach album sequencing. Your records are always start to finish listens for me. I presume The Second Side of Abbey Road is your lodestar, but I'm sure you have much less obvious references. And are there classic albums you consider in the wrong order?
1: Ooh. Well... I love the second side of Abbey Road. Although I can't remember what it starts with because we had it on CD. So I don't know where the second side starts.
0: No, I don't, I don't either. So, okay, that shows what we know about the Beatles. Um so there's a bunch of things that go into album sequencing. Some are very obvious. Like this song sounds like the start of an album. <laughs> Is that too obvious?
1: And I mean, what? Well, I feel like we we generally put the, like a track that kind of has a sort of its own little build intro, up. yeah. Um, if or if we do have a song like that, then that might some that 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 might that might go first, yeah.
0: And likewise, although in a less obvious way, we might have a song that feels like this is a good album closer. So certainly, like, find a way to keep me on open here is like that's that's an album closer you
1: don't do anything after that that's how it ends or you can sometimes have that thing where you have you have like a coda a coda where it's like you th- the, the album's kind of closed then you say and we're still talking about Ivy road here you know so yeah but like her <laughs> majesty really isn't it
0: or so, you have like some, some something else i mean i, I always think of um pavement so like and carrot roll terror, terror twilight has this like mood that goes through the whole record it it leads you on this like journey and then they have carrot rope. wow
1: wow wow wow, <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> and in a way we've i think we've done that with flat white moon as well it's like there's this there's a sweep to the album that finishes with the curtained room and then as like as a as a little change as a a slightly, a a goodbye and a slightly different feel. We've got, you Mm. get better. Um, Then linked to that with your starters and your ends, we do try and sequence them often according to the sides of the records. Yeah. So you've also got, okay, well, what would work as a start of side two, or in the case of, you know, measure,
1: what book is the start of side two, three, and four? <laughs> yeah, and I think also well, yeah, and quite often we might put some of the things that would not be considered bangers um, at the I, end of side one. At <laughs> the end, uh, well, well, I was th- I was thinking kind of you know on on measure where there's there's kind of like um like a a, a heap of attempted attempted sort of snippets. Um, which I really like, but they are, you know, they are they are st- snippets in a kind of in a, in a fully formed way, but it's like this is they aren't proper s- songs. Um, so you wouldn't put
0: them. You, you want you want a record to draw you into it. So you have you have to use the beginning of the first side of a record to go, come on, come and join our sound world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and occasionally, you know, we'll have songs that are written to fit together so yeah. at the beginning of plum like start the day right and sorry again mate with it's okay to change in the middle you know we always played them as a thing we yeah and it was very diff- them yeah and it was as- very
1: difficult to take them apart and a ma- you know it's w- when we played them live we couldn't really take them apart really yeah a lot, of, um, a lot of Plum is like that because yeah.
0: we, because we we did it in that kind of flowing way. And occasionally, maybe le- less so with the field music records and more so with the solo records, it's like, well, there's a thematic chronological order. These songs kind yeah. of have to go
1: in. I think there's also, for a field music record, let's not have a full side of you sing and lead vocals and then have a full side of me singing lead vocals. I think I, to ver- vary the, to vary the, the, vary the design dyna- and, and the other thing is varying the keys and the dynamics and the, and the mood. Um, but I don't know whether there's, I don't know whether we have any set rules for that.
0: No, we, we'll, we'll try things and see what, what works, but you know, for a band where there are two lead singers, it would be strange to have like, okay, there's five of your songs in a row. And then, I, I, you know, the nature of field music is that it's the the push and pull between what the two of us do. Yeah, yeah. So you want to represent that in a, in a record in a way that makes sense for a listener. There's also the issue of tempo. Oh, yeah. And this is where you're really getting into the nitty gritty if you do a song, which is like quite upbeat, but not too fast, and then follow it with a song, which is also quite upbeat, but a tiny bit slower, that second song will feel like
1: it is dragging. I think we get, I think we get, I think you're right. I think we do get a little bit paranoid about that. And it's not a bad, it's not, a, it's not it's a bad thing to consider. It's just something to be conscious of. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to consider but I sometimes think we get really, we become tempo babies. We, we are, I mean, I am
0: a tempo baby. I think with making a new world, because the structure of that was set according to which decade each song was set in. <laughs> there were a couple of things where it's like, okay, now we've, we've got one of these changes we would usually try and avoid where the tempo goes down a little bit. What do we do to make sure that second song in in the the sequence? What did we do? You make a a big deal of the tempo change. So from uh, only in a man's world goes into money is a memory, and money is memory is actually money is a memory is actually quite slow in a but way. But an upbeat sort. Of but an upbeat thing. kind of song. Um, so you know we had. A very obvious slowing down of the mm-hmm. clickety-clack percussion and one, two, three, four. Oh yeah, them. of course, yeah, yeah. And then let money's in memory build up again to avoid that. But yeah, if you have a a quickish song and go to a very slow song, that that is always kind of fine. The thing to be conscious of is a. Uh, a quickish song to a slightly slower song is that that's always the kind of that's the moment where you wonder whether it's whether it's going to work or not um any any anything else that goes into album sequencing
1: i can't i can't think of anything really i can't think of it. i mean I, th- I think a lot of it is just how you feel about it and you know all of the records that you've listened to you know they they are the records that you've listened to end up being, you know, like Elliot says, Abbey Road. Is it a touchstone, really? It's like, well, uh, I didn't think it was, but it probably is. Yeah, it probably is, yeah. Um, yeah, And that probably will probably is. go for, if it's acceptable for the Beatles, then it's <laughs> acceptable for us. <laughs> you know, and that probably goes for any any number of records. Um, I mean, I can't think of any... Where you feel like the album sequencing's not right. There's some I mean, I've just not. I've never really. I've never really tried. I mean, I've tried it with the White Album. You know, it's a classic one to try to do it in a different order or, or to, to skip do, tracks. Do, um, yeah, but but then again, I, you know, I have that sort of view of that now. It's just, it's the White Album. It's perfect. It's the bloody Beatles. Wow. It's it's so imperfect. It couldn't be anything else <laughs> yeah. than
0: perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm 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 with you on that. There are some some albums where I like the first song. Least. Um, and I would say, so Highway by Free. I don't love don't really know that f- album. the first song. What's that? He's singing about like, you know, going to see the farmer's daughter and stuff. And it's just like, it's a little bit too much trying to be the band and not being the band. Um, And I mean, my least favorite song on Blonde on Blonde is is rainy day women and it's you know it's fine that it's there it's not yeah. that i'd like dislike it or anything it's just like it it's my least favorite song on that record it probably wouldn't work anywhere else just take record. it
1: off yeah. is that what you would have said <laughs> just t- just take it off
0: I, I would just start with pledging my time it's like it and, and yeah it I, can, works I can see what you mean it's got a kind of,
1: of it's
0: pretty silly i have uh, heard someone say in in a book about sign of the times that sign of the times the song is the worst song on sign of the times and i think that's just crazy talk because i think sign of the times is a masterpiece
1: it's t- yeah i mean you can complain about whether the lyrics make sense but I, so you're I, saying I, sign of the times the song is worse than housequake <laughs> dude bush already <laughs> damn <laughs> actually no you might be right House Quakes amazing. Right, so we'll have
0: another another listener's question from Simon Sheffield. He says, Find a way to keep me reminds me of Quadrophenia, but the Who might have gone on a bit longer, arguably with more showing off, as would a lot of prog bands. Mm. As our foremost prog-funk combo, (laughs) (laughs) I wonder who you like prog-wise, and do you sometimes... Have to stop yourselves.
1: Um, I don't really know Quadrophenia. I,
0: I, don't so, think I, I don't think I know that record. So we can't deal with the Quadrophenia element of it. But I mean, they were good at showing off.
1: It was like they were all playing lead solos at the same time. Yeah. Um, Which I like. And I don't really see Pete Townsend as like a lead, lead guitarist. He's like a rhythm energy. He's like a lead and... Everything sort of guitarist, you know. He's like, it's all at the same time. Yeah, and I don't think I've ever heard Keith Moon play a hi hat. It just just seems to be toms and cymbals to me. <laughs> His career was one long drum solo. <laughs> That's who, not true. Who, but
0: um, who do we like
1: prog wise? <clears throat> um, I mean, I, I think I think the reason why we're not a prog band. It's because we're not good enough musicians. And I don't think we, I think we take being quite good musicians in terms of like playing on our instruments very like quite quite seriously. But I always feel that we try and play things that are slightly beyond us. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's what I like. I, I, I don't sit around and practice loads and loads and loads on the drums or on the guitar. I mean, maybe maybe I should. Have you got um, time
0: though? I don't have time.
1: Um, Make time to Probably, practice. probably not. not There's a, some things that I would like to be able to play. I'm, I'm, you, know? you know, I used to practice a lot when I was a kid on the guitar, like a lot, and I definitely don't have that time anymore. Um, I mean, that has gone off the question a bit, but anyway, that's why I probably wouldn't consider. I mean, it, a, I, mean I don't yeah, even know what a prog.
0: I don't know what our a prog instrumental band is. prowess is. Our pr- prowess as instrumentalists. Is not what our music is about. <laughs>
1: no. Our no, style
0: no, no. as instrumentalists is. is would you part say I was quite the stylish
1: on the. On the uh... I didn't mean it in that way. <laughs> oh. Damn. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, like. Virtuosity is like. It's not. But I, d- I do. Not a thing. I do.
1: I'm not, I'm not opposed to virtuosity at all. And there are cert- certain prog. Bands that people would consider like prog, without a doubt. Although someone once said King Crimson aren't prog, they are they are art rock.
0: They're not prog. I think I think there's some hair splitting there, but I mean that that's, well, that's this the is, nature what of what it all that's, about. That's this what happens what it's with all genres, about. isn't it?
1: But I I really like King Crimson.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't know loads of King Crimson <clears throat> records, but the ones I have, which is uh, Larks Tongues and Aspic uh, and Discipline. I mean, I, I, I really like those. I, I feel mean, they're not It's knotty like, records it's,
1: it's, it's just ideas. Yeah. And I feel like Robert Fripp was a bit like that kind of Miles Davis sort of band leader, where it's like, I have these ideas. You have to just be able to come into this band and just do them. Otherwise, you're not ready to be in the band.
0: Yeah. If I have to tell you what to play, then, then
1: I'm not going to call you for the next album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is why someone where like Bill Bruford was with him obviously for a long, long time, you know, and obviously later on Tony Levin was there for a long, long time. It's because I don't really think you necessarily needed to tell them what to do. Mm. It was just like, this is what I've got. What you have, what you bring to it has to be right. I don't think there was a lot of, y- you must l- learn this thing. We all need to learn this way of, way of playing. I don't think so, but I I don't know. But I think there are prog bands that are a bit like that. Um, you know, like kind of that middle period of yes, which I don't really know very well. But the the bits that I've heard, it's like it's it's too much for me. Mm. It's like too florid compositionally and technically uh, virtuosic. And I'm sure there's loads of ideas in there as well. But it's just I, I almost can't hear the ideas for the for the playing. Yeah. Um, Man, that
0: makes sense to me. Um, I mean, there is one prog record which we had for a very long time and, that, and I do really love it and consider it kind of influential in a way, which is The Land Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis. Yeah. It's not like I know a lot of Genesis. I've, I've, I still haven't really got into the albums before that with Peter Gabriel. And then in the Phil Collins era, I mean, I kind of like know and kind of love the hits. Yeah. Um, but The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway seems to me that that interesting mix of we're going for something and it's a little bit out of our reach and
1: there is a kind of like a bit of self-deprecating humour about it. I think that's one of the things I think Peter Gabriel has just such a great sense of humour. Yeah. I think it, it it's um and very, very English sense of humour. You know, you can you can hear like this almost like the kind of like the schoolboy in him sometime and the kind of yeah. love of playfulness of words and for it to be really serious. Again, like, you know, I, th- I think they, they took that record like really seriously. It sounds like it, but I, I don't think Peter Gabriel took himself and I definitely don't think Phil Collins takes himself too seriously or, it, or they did, you know, they certainly didn't then, you know, that's yeah. what I get from that record. Yeah. And I still enjoy, you know, I still enjoy the lamb, which we should just refer to forevermore. It's just the lamb. The lamb. It's the lamb. It's the only (laughs) lamb.
0: So, so I think that answers one side of Simon's question. Do you sometimes have to stop yourselves?
1: No, no, no. No, We. I mean, we don't have to stop ourselves because ourselves stop ourselves anyway. Because I just don't think we're kind of. Um, well, actually it depends what he means. Does he I mean, mean like- I enjoy playing around and
0: playing too much. If we're in the studio on our own and the guitars are cranked up and you know we just we are literally just messing around. yeah, just play and play and just do absolutely daft things. But I wouldn't then want to listen to that. And if I don't wanna to listen to it, I don't want to put it on a record for someone else to listen to.
1: Mind you, it uh, would be boring. On a on a record, yeah, but I think live it might get it might get a bit different. I remember, you know, when um Emma Pollock from the Delgados came away on two of us. And uh, <laughs> she saw us for that first night, she was like there's a lot more shredding than I was expecting. <laughs> 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 it's more, you know, and more I don't think it was a criticism I hope it wasn't I, don't <laughs> think, I hope it wasn't you
0: know. but I think but, um, I think because of the nature of the live band like it always ends up being um quite constrained there's like there's these four bars where I'm gonna I'm I really, I'm gonna play guitar and I'm gonna have a great time and I'm gonna be laughing about it by the end and hopefully the audience but will be laughing about worry, it, it don't worry yeah, it won't last very long yeah it won't last <laughs> very long but I don't think there's ever like we never have to go oh no let's we should cut down that section because nobody really wants to play us.
1: But I think maybe that's part of the, um, you know, the the brevity of things is a bit more like, um, because the, the other sort of like, I don't know whether you'd call it, even call it a prog album, you probably would, is Wizard of True Star. And everything by Todd Rundgren, and everything's like so short on there. And there is some proggy stuff on there, shreddy. It goes all over the place. Mega shreddy. It's got a it's
0: got a theme. All the tracks run into each other. Yeah. There's loads of instruments going on. It's utterly daft.
1: It's totally really funny. brilliant. Really funny. Really, really quite moving in places as well. I think. And um, yeah, I mean that that's maybe for me is my like ultimate like. I don't know whether you'd even call it a prog album, it's, but it's my ultimate sort of album in that field. I think the fact that he, could get, he can get
0: all of that across in these like tiny snippets probably is. like It ties into how we think about how albums should be structured. Don't, yeah. don't do it for more than you have to. If, if you want to make something to dance to, too short is probably bad because it doesn't give people time to dance. But if you're just like, I've got this musical idea, I need to show you, you might not need to show someone twice. (laughs) You might just like, there you go. Especially on a record, like you can go back to a record and dive into it again and again and again. And you don't need to understand it all on the first listen. And maybe records are boring if you understand it all on the first listen.